Isaiah chapter 6. I'll say a word of greeting and thanks in just a moment after we read and after we pray. Isaiah chapter 6, I'll be covering the first eight verses. If you would just follow along as I read. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. You can be seated as we pray together. Father, our prayer is that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. We pray that you would open our ears to hear your truth. That you would open our hearts to receive it by faith. We pray Father, we believe these things help our unbelief. We pray that you would not only help us to listen, but to learn, to put this to practice as we learn how to respond to a holy God. I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word, that you would help me to preach well, to preach clearly, to get the text right, And that we as your people would respond rightly. Your servants are listening, Lord. We're here to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us by your spirit and through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored, really, when Mark called and asked me to fill the pulpit. He must be way down on the list of subs. He said all of his local guys were unavailable. So I'm always glad to preach God's Word anywhere, and Mark and I have had a great relationship for many years. He and our previous pastor at Kelty's had a very close relationship. I was able to meet with Mark and Bob Clun for, for quite a while on Tuesday mornings before I had other scheduling conflicts. So I love your pastor. My wife loves your pastor's wife, and we have lots of friends, and I see lots of familiar faces here as well. So it's a joy uh, to preach and to serve the Lord in this way. 
And we're looking at what's probably a familiar text to you in Isaiah chapter 6. I think one of the most important texts in the Bible, especially when we come to understand who God is and what He is like and how we're to respond to Him. I want to go ahead and give you my outline. I borrowed my outline points from author Jerry Bridges, but I'm doing my own fill-in. He simply outlined this passage, and I'm going to do it the same in four ways. Let me give you those four outline points, and then we'll back up and break those down. In understanding how to respond to a holy God, I want us to see first that God must be revealed. God must be revealed. Number two, I want us to see that guilt must be realized. That guilt must be realized. Number three, that grace must be received. Grace must be received. And fourthly, gratitude must be the response. Gratitude must be the response. God must be revealed. Guilt must be realized. Grace must be received. Gratitude must be the response. If you've um, ever studied the holiness of God, no doubt you've read probably one of the greatest books written on the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. If you've never read that book, I would commend you to buy a copy soon and read it. Any adult can read it. I think any teenager or older elementary student even could, could work through it with a parent. An excellent book where R.C. Sproul unpacks not just this passage, but the whole concept of the holiness of God. I'm indebted to that work as I've prepared this message. We'll be quoting from that a few times. There's another book, though, that I, I want to quote at the very beginning, and it's another book you may be familiar with. It's A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Maybe you've read that. If you haven't read it, maybe you're familiar with the first line of this book. In A.W. Tozer's work, The Knowledge of the Holy, where he talks about the attributes of God, he says on the very first page, on the very first chapter, after a prayer of introduction, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Has anybody ever heard that quote before? What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I agree with him. And I think holiness is one of the things that ought to come to our mind when we think about God. When someone asks you, what is God like? Who is God? One of the first, if not the first answers you ought to give is God is holy. Beloved, we have to understand the holiness of God. If we don't understand the holiness of God, we won't understand God. If we don't understand God's holiness, we won't understand ourselves and our sinfulness. We'll talk about that in just a moment. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you won't understand the depth of your sin. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you won't understand the horrors of hell. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you won't understand what a privilege we have to pray. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you won't understand the attitude of worship. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you won't understand a motive for service. You won't understand the wonders of heaven if you don't understand the holiness of God. If you don't understand the holiness of God, beloved, you won't understand the cross. Amen? Because the cross is where 
a holy God had to crush His holy Son so that He could make unholy people a holy people. The holiness of God is important, isn't it? We dare not approach this topic or this text casually because we don't approach God casually, do we? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, says Hebrews 10. I'm not going to go casually fishing off the edge of Niagara Falls. I'm not going to let my kids play chase on the rim of the Grand Canyon. I'm not going to yawn with disinterest looking through the Hubble telescope. No, I'm going to stand in awe of those things. I'm going to look with wonder. I'm going to gaze with amazement at these things. And likewise, we come to the holiness of God. Maybe, maybe some who live near Niagara Falls have become accustomed to the tons and tons of rushing water going over the cliff all the time. Maybe, and maybe those who live close to the Grand Canyon, maybe they're used to that big hole in the ground over there. Or, I don't know, perhaps there's an astronomer who punches his clock, dragging in on a Monday morning thinking, oh, I've got to try to find the end of the universe again. Maybe, but I doubt it. I doubt it, and neither should we ever become familiar with the holiness of God. We're given several peaks of God's holiness throughout Scripture. We're given several peaks into really the throne room of God. You might go to Revelation 4 or Revelation 5 to get a glimpse there, or uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 gives us a future glimpse and then here in Isaiah 6. I think Isaiah 6 is probably the more popular passage, not because it's simplistic, because it's just a little more easily understood. And so it's going to give us a glimpse into the holiness of God. Again, God is revealing himself, our guilt is realized, our grace will be received, and gratitude will be the response. So let's look at the text. We're just going to go by verse by Verse And let's begin with point number one, that God must be revealed. If I'm going to respond to a holy God, he must first reveal himself to us. I want to go ahead and let you know, in case you're watching your clock and you're doing outline math, this first point will be a lot longer than the last three. So if you're figuring it out in your head, don't worry. When I get to point two and we're almost done, we'll almost be done, even though there's three more points. By the way, Mark said I could go as long as I wanted to. Under point one, God must be revealed. Let's look at or answer several questions, kind of who, what, when, why questions. First question answered by the text is when. When did Isaiah see? Verse one tells us that it was in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord. So who is King Uzziah? This is important to know. You may flip back to Second Chronicles chapter 26, if you can, just to the left in your Bible. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. 1st or 2nd Chronicles chapter 26 tell us that Uzziah was appointed king of Judah at that young age of 16. 16 years old. Most kids can't or just now learning to drive then. He was appointed king at the age of 16. He reigned for 50 Two years. That's the second longest reigning king next to Manasseh who reigned for 55 years. That's 
the length of eight and a half, perhaps, two-term presidencies, if that gives you some idea. Second Chronicles 26 tells us that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He feared God. He prospered. God prospered as he sought the Lord. Uh, Uzziah was a military king, a successful military king. We read in this chapter he was an agricultural king. He was an industrial king. He was an innovative king. But he soon became a strong king, verse 15. And when he became strong, we're told that he grew proud. He became a proud king. That's not helpful no matter what you've accomplished previously. He became so proud and so strong, it was to his destruction. And verse 16 tells us that he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And it took Azariah and 80 other priests to chase in after him to pull him out of there. But not in enough time. With the scepter, smoking, flaming censer in his hand, he grew angry and was immediately struck with leprosy on his forehead before they could drag him out. He was, of course, separated as a leper. He died as a leper. He was remembered as a leper. This is King Uzziah. Nonetheless, he did have a good reign for many years, a long reign for many years, and his death probably sent the nation into mourning. Isaiah might have possibly been here in the temple seeking comfort, seeking solace, mourning Uzziah's death. And this is when he saw another king sitting on another throne. That's when Isaiah saw. Who did Isaiah see? Verse 1 tells us, I saw the Lord. We don't have to guess who he saw. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is Lord. This is Adonai, a title which means sovereign one. And even within the word sovereign, you know that word. It means that God reigns, doesn't he? And I want a king by very nature. A king reigns over his kingdom. Isaiah saw on the throne the sovereign God, Adonai. Later in verse 3, you're going to notice that the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But there, if you'll compare, Lord is capitalized, all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That isn't a title for God. That's his very name, Yahweh, God's name, his self-sufficient, unspeakable to some Jews name, his personal name, Adonai, his title, Yahweh, his personal name. Isaiah saw the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one, Yahweh himself on the throne. Psalm 8, verse 1, you may be familiar with, O O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh, our Adonai, our self-sufficient one, our sovereign one, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here, Isaiah is probably mourning the loss of a long-reigning, successful king as he's well aware. He's afraid of an empty throne, perhaps, and yet he sees the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the sovereign of all sovereigns who will rule far beyond a short 52 years. Amen? We know that this king that Isaiah sees will reign 
forever. And Isaiah will tell us that later in this great prophecy in chapter 9. He'll tell us about another king to be born, a son to be given. The government will be upon his shoulder. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And this government and peace, there will be no end. This is who Isaiah saw. I kind of prefer Handel's paraphrase of that passage. And he shall reign for how? Ever and ever. This is who Isaiah saw. Beloved, are you worried about our government, about our political leaders? Please don't answer that. I'm sure I know the answer. You're worried about those who rule over us in the political realm? Are you tempted to trust too much in our government? Maybe even when someone's in office that you voted for? We know better. We know not to trust in chariots. We know not to trust in horses. We know as believers we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a reminder that we know who is on the throne. And we know that that Lord of lords and King of kings, when I look to the end of the book, I know who wins. I know he will return. I know he will conquer. Revelation 17, Revelation 19. When did Isaiah see? In the year that King Uzziah died. Who did he see? He saw the Lord Adonai, the sovereign one, seated on his throne. How did he see? Let's not kind of skip over the obvious question. How did he see? Was he literally in the presence of God? Well, we know that no one can see God and live, so this most likely was a vision. He saw a vision. This is not uncommon in Scripture. Ezekiel had a vision. John the Revelator had a vision. Paul the Apostle had a vision. We know that even those visions, as Paul said, were tempting and tempting someone to be proud. So Paul was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being proud because of his vision. So we don't know exactly how Isaiah saw, but more than likely it was a vision. He entered into the presence of the Lord. He knows the fear and the trembling that comes from being in the presence of the Lord. He said earlier in Isaiah chapter 2, he says, enter the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. He says in Isaiah 57 verse 15, the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Isaiah knows he's seeing a holy Majestic God. So how did Isaiah see? He saw this in a vision. He sees the Lord on a throne. Why did Isaiah see? Why did Isaiah see? Why was Isaiah given this vision? Well, no doubt because he was about to be commissioned. We're going to get to the beginning of that commission in verse 8. He saw the Lord because he was about to be commissioned as a prophet to the nations. He was about to prophesy of an eternal king. So he needed to have his message right. If you're going to know the God of whom you speak, you need to know who he is. He had to have a right view of his king. And this was a vision that God gave Uzziah. Isaiah wasn't allowed to make up his own vision of God. He didn't get to imagine or dream up his own version of God. He could not use his own imagination and beloved neither 
should we? If you want to know what God is like, we need to ask God, right? If I want to know what God is like, I need to go to His revelation. He tells me clearly what He is like. I can't think up or dream up my own version of what God is like. Maybe you've met people like that. They say, well, well, my God isn't like that. Okay, probably not, but that's not the God of the Bible. If we want to know who God is and what He is like, we go to His Word. This is why biblical theology is important. Theology, simply a knowledge of God. We get our theology from the Bible, not our imagination. We must have the right Jesus, the right Christ of the right Scriptures, not the Jesus of Oprah or the God of Osteen, but the God of Scripture. This is why Isaiah saw he was about to be commissioned. What exactly did he see? We're still under point one, God revealing himself. We see when he saw, how he saw, who he saw. What did he see? What did he see as he saw the Lord? Look back at verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Let's stop right there. Sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The throne was high and lifted up or the Lord was high and lifted up? Well, this is a vision. So if a throne is lifted up, that means the one on the throne is lifted up. We're not exalting a throne. We're exalting the one who is on the throne by means of a throne. Where there is a throne, we just said, is a ruler. Where there's a ruler, there's a sovereign. There's a king. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's where the... Those who who have a monarchy, they use that expression, your highness, because they're high, they're lifted up, their position is lifted up. I love what Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, said about this throne that Isaiah saw. Matthew Henry said, this is a throne of glory before which we must worship. This is a throne of government under which we must be subject And this is a throne of grace to which we may come boldly. He saw the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. Maybe if you're thinking about the train of his robe, maybe you're thinking about the train of a wedding dress. That's kind of what comes to my mind. If you've seen any regal and royal weddings... You know that the bride has a long train behind her dress. We don't see that a lot anymore. Now they get married in barns on hay bales wearing blue jeans. And that's fine, I guess, but you lose the regality of that dress. And the beauty of the bride sometimes is represented by the long train. The longer the train, the more glorious. And similar in, again, in kingly circles, the longer the train, the more costly, the more majestic, the more regal. God's not wearing a robe. This is a figure of speech to understand. He doesn't have a body, so it's just it's telling us about his great regal and royalty. The train of his robe filled the temple. That's how big it was. And he says it's the train of his robe. That word you may even have in your translation can even be translated the hem of his robe. This word is either translated skirt in some places in the Old Testament or hem in other places. Hem, like the bottom part of your robe or your clothing. Maybe that's what he meant. If just the hem of his robe 
filled the temple. How big is the robe and how big is the, the God? The idea is that this is big. This is royal. This is regal. One commentator, John Oswalt, said this. He said, Words fail to describe the greatness of God, so Isaiah's words can rise no higher than the hem of his robe. That's the idea here. He's trying to describe the undescribable. The point being wasn't that the robe filled the temple. The point being was that God filled the temple. That's what he saw. The train, the throne, high and lifted up, filling the temple. But he saw something else. What, what else did he saw? Uh, did, what else did he see? He saw seraphim. Look at verse 2. Above him, above the Lord, above the throne, stood the seraphim. What in the world are seraphim? These are God's heavenly servants, probably angels, angelic creatures, although typically there's a different word used for angels in the Old Testament. Typically it's malak. Here it's a different word, but still creaturely. But these aren't your lovely, ethereal, harp-strumming angels floating around on clouds. No, this word seraphim literally means fiery ones or burning ones. You need the image of fire in your mind when you think of these seraphim. It's used both of angels and even serpents somewhere in the Bible. They're here fiery ones probably because of the link that the Bible gives between holiness and fire. Remember when God was escorting and leading Israel out of Egypt. He led them by day a cloud, a pillar of cloud, and by night a pillar of what? Of fire. Often fire is related to the presence and holiness of God. These are seraphim. These are living creatures. They're described here in the same way that they're described in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, also surrounding the throne. They're also described in Ezekiel 1. So you can footnote in your margin those passages. They're fiery ones. Again, he's trying to describe this vision of what he's seeing in a throne room, seeing the unseeable, describing the indescribable, imagining the unimaginable, and trying to communicate that to us. He's speaking in somewhat apocalyptic terminology. He's trying to explain the future and eternity in in temporal words, and, and you see the difficulty in that. So when we think this is hard to understand, or you read Ezekiel, I'm not sure what he's saying, or you read Revelation, what's with all this sim- symbolism? That's the challenge. It's trying to describe electricity to a, a native in a in a prehistoric tribe in the middle of Africa. You're, you don't have words to describe it, so you're trying to use their words. But he does describe these seraphim. Look at verse 2. These seraphim each had six wings. Again, they're described the same way in Revelation 4. With two, he covered his face. Now, why cover their face? Why would the angels cover their face? I believe it's because sinless angelic beings are still created beings and they must still shield their faces from a holy God. They must still know their creaturely limitations. They're angelic creatures, yes. They're heavenly creatures, yes. But they're still creatures. They're still created. And they know that. 
Remember, no one can see God and live. No one. They're covering their faces. Though they themselves are bright creatures, no doubt from the reflection of the glory of God, they must hide their their faces from the brightest bright of the glory of God. How long does it take you in the mornings if... When I was a teenager in school, when my mom wanted to wake me up for school, she just flicked on the light. Get up, you're going to be late. That was, that was how we gradually worked into getting up. Flicked on the light, your eyes squint, you go under the covers, and it takes you a few moments, if not minutes, to adjust to the light, right? If you've been in the dark. How long do you think it would take, and I don't recommend this, to get your eyes adjusted to looking in the sun. In fact, you can't do that. Your eyes would be damaged if you could endure the pain after only a couple of minutes. It takes a while to get used to a bright light in a room. It's impossible to get used to the brightness of the sun. Do we think that we or even heavenly creatures would ever get used to the brightness of the gaze of the glory of the God who created the sun? With two wings, they covered their face. With two wings, they covered their feet. Why do you think they covered their feet? Maybe you're thinking of Moses. Remember what Moses had to do when he approached the burning bush? He had to take off his shoes because why? Standing on holy ground. These angelic creatures are always standing on holy ground. Their feet are covered. It shows humility. It could even reflect a bowing posture as well. And then with two wings, they do what most creatures do with wings. They flew. They flew. They were ready and waiting to do the Lord's bidding. Angels are messengers, by the way. Many of God's angels are messengers. They bring His message to earth. They're ministers of grace, messengers of His will. Think of Gabriel announcing the Savior's birth that we celebrated just last month. One commentator reflected on the angels so far that they're all wings and all voice ready to serve and ready to praise. This is what we're seeing in these angelic heavenly creatures called seraphim. So he sees these seraphim and what are they saying to one another? Look at verse 3. One called to another. It's similar to our call and response that we did today. It's similar to a uh, is it an antiphonal call and response that churches would often do. We say something and we respond. Perhaps this is what they're doing back and forth to one another, and this is what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Here we have the high point of the passage. Here we have the focus of the vision. The very revelation of the character of God is seen in these words. I told you R.C. Sproul was helpful here. He says, these three words sung in succession are what give the church its most august anthem. He goes on to explain that three times holy is, uh, is repeated for emphasis. Typically in the Bible, when something is doubled and repeated once, it's for emphasis. You think of Jesus teaching, he would say, verily, verily, right? Truly, truly, I say to you. And that means this is important. It's a double emphasis. Here you have a triple emphasis, an ultimate 
emphasis. This is the strongest, in the Hebrew language, the strongest superlative form. This is all caps in bold underlining in your texts and emails. This is what he's trying to explain with the triple holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh is the word here. Holiness. It simply means separate. It means set apart. Notice there are many other attributes he could be, the angels could be calling out here. They could be calling out love, love, love. And God is a God of love. Amen. God is love, First John. That would be appropriate, wouldn't it? God is merciful, merciful, merciful. Aren't you glad for the mercy of God if you're a believer? Of course we are. Justice, justice, justice. The angels could have been crying out. That's a true attribute of God. Some of you are longing for the day when God finally makes right all the wrongs that this world has brought into your life. We're awaiting that day when God will right all wrongs. We're waiting for His ultimate justice. Or maybe they're calling out wrath. 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 God truly is a God of wrath, isn't He? He hates sin. Why holy? Why holy? Because holy is the sum of all these attributes. Holy is the attribute of all attributes. Holy is because, they crawl out holy because when we speak of His love, it's a holy love. When we speak of His wrath, it's a holy wrath. When you talk about His mercy, it's a holy mercy. What do we mean by that? It's set apart. It's separate. It's not like anything else. There is no love like the love of God. Why? He has a holy love. There is no justice like God's justice because it is a holy justice there is no wrath like God's holy wrath we can emulate and imitate many of those characteristics of God in our love and our mercy and our justice but they're all tainted with sin aren't they they're all tainted by our flesh but God's love is holy love God's wrath is holy wrath God's mercy is holy mercy the angels are crying out the very essence of who God is holy holy holy. He wants us to know that there is no other God like Him. You might also look ahead later, later on when you have some time in Isaiah chapters 44, 45, and 46. At least ten times in those chapters, you find the phrase, I am the Lord and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. At least ten times that phrase quoted. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. To whom shall we compare the Lord? Nobody. There's nothing to compare Him to. The holiness of God refers to His absolute moral purity and separateness, says Richard Lent. Stephen Sharnock said of God's holiness, it is His beauty that holiness is the crown of all His attributes, that holiness is the brightness of all His actions. A.W. Pink, we mentioned him, uh, no, that was Tozer. A.W. Pink said, holiness is the very excellency of the divine nature. The great God, according to Exodus 15, is glorious in holiness. 
This is who Isaiah saw. His holiness is his utter, unique, divine essence. His All he does and all he is is determined by no one other than his own holiness. His holiness is what he is as God. I love what Piper says about his holiness. John Piper says, In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. There may yet to be more to know of God, but that would be beyond words. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2.20, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. In our family, as our kids were growing up, holy was a word that we reserved to only be used of the Lord. I don't think it's a sin to use it outside of there, but we try to reserve holy and the word awesome for to describe the Lord. Uh, mackerels are not holy. Smokes is not holy. Cows are not holy. God is holy. So we want to reserve those words for Him. I love pizza, but it's not awesome. God is awesome. Pizza is just really good. These are words we want to reserve for the Lord and the Lord alone. He is holy. And the whole earth, verse 3 says, is full of His glory. The outshining of these holy perfections is His glory in all the earth. It extends beyond the temple, beyond the vision, beyond this chapter to the whole earth. God's glory cannot be vi- cannot be contained in this temple or in this vision. We're still looking at this angelic utterance here, verse 4. What happens as the angels are saying back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It says the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Notice this isn't the voice of God that's shaking the foundations. That's understandable. This is the voice of the angelic creatures calling out of the holiness of God that's shaking the foundations. We know God's voice will shake the foundations of the earth. But here it's just the angelic voices of holiness that are shaking the foundations. Again, Piper is helpful here in thinking, don't think of chubby little babies floating on clouds, not these kind of angels Think these are more more and likened to blue angels shooting overhead at the speed of sound with loud kabooms and shakes and shudders. Piper says there are no puny or silly creatures in heaven, only majestic ones. The house was filled with smoke. Again, smoke symbolic of the very presence of God, similar to fire. All of his senses have been enacted now, right? His sight, His sound, He smells the smoke, soon to be touch, soon to be taste. This is what Isaiah saw. This is who Isaiah saw. Listen, beloved, I don't expect that this church building or Kelty's First Baptist is going to move or shake or fill with smoke. But if we were truly to enter into the presence of the Lord, which we should do on any given Lord's Day service, in our worship, in our singing, in our preaching, in our devotion, should not the very marrow of our souls quake and shake 
in terror and awe and humility and repentance and joy and praise. Let us therefore be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12. How would you respond to a holy God like this? That is what Isaiah saw. God must be revealed. I told you that was all point one. I know we front-loaded the beginning of that, but more quickly now. After God is revealed, number two, guilt must be realized. Guilt must be realized. Look at the first word out of the mouth of Isaiah in chapter 5. He finally, for the first time, speaks and becomes self-aware. He says, woe. Not woe. Woe. W-O-E. For the first time, Isaiah speaks. And he's beginning to understand himself. We said at the beginning, quoting Tozer, the most important thing that comes to your mind when you think about God, the most important thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I think secondly, what comes to your mind when you think about yourself is the second most important thing, and Isaiah is going to show that. If I understand God to be high and holy and majestic, majestic, then the second most important thing I need to understand is that I am not. We say this often at Celtis. We want to preach a high view of God and a low view of man. And this is consistent with theologians throughout the ages. John Calvin and his institutes, in the introduction to his institutes, said that when it comes to true and solid biblical wisdom, it consists of two parts. Calvin said the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. That's what he's talking about here. God in His holiness and man in His sinfulness. This is everything for the believer. When we understand that God is high and holy and the higher our view of God and understand that I am lowly and helpless and hopeless apart from Christ, then I understand the the lower down I go and the higher I get God, the bigger the gap and the more beautiful the gospel becomes as Christ bridges that gap between a holy God and a sinful man. When I look at your heavens, the psalmist says, when I look at your heavens and the works of your hand, your fingers, the sun and the moon which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8. Isaiah was considered the most righteous man of his day. And yet one moment in the presence of God via vision was enough to reveal his sin and true self. He said, woe is me. What does that word woe mean? I'll tell you what the opposite of woe means. The opposite of woe is blessed. When Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It's a blessing. A woe is the opposite of a blessing. A woe is a curse. To pronounce a woe on someone or something is to curse that person or something. Isaiah with a glimpse of the glory of God, is pronouncing a curse on himself. He's, if, if I could, he's damning himself after this view of the holiness of God. Consider Aaron's priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord 
bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a blessing. Again, quoting R.C. Sproul in a famous sermon he preached called The Curse Motif. I would encourage you to Google that, look it up on YouTube, The Curse Motif. He's speaking about the cursings of God, and he's trying to help us understand what would it mean for God to curse someone. And to help us understand, he reversed and replaced the words of Aaron's blessing. Could you imagine this being pronounced upon you? May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn His back upon you and remove His peace from you forever. That's not something I would want pronounced upon me. That's something I don't know that I've ever pronounced upon myself. But Isaiah says to himself, Woe is me. Woes are for wicked nations. Woes are for hypocritical priests and Pharisees, not for God's prophets and not to be pronounced upon oneself, but he does it. And he says, I'm lost. Woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. Some translations say it means unraveled, ruined, or most literally disintegrated, disintegrated. We think disintegrated burned up. It actually is the opposite of integrated. What does it mean to be integrated? It means you've got it all together, right? Disintegrated means it all comes apart. He's unraveling at the seams. He had it all together on the outside, a righteous man, but he stands before a holy God. His true identity is revealed and he comes undone. He dwells in the midst of a people. He, as a good prophet, identifies with the people. He dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. At this point, God is revealed. Guilt is realized. Number three, grace must be received. Grace must be received. Verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. God sends one of his burning seraphs with a burning coal using tongs, no doubt because of the heat, and sears his lips. The God who is three times holy is the one who must make us holy, set us apart. Why? Why his lips? Why? touch his lips, most likely because he was a prophet and his ministry was a spoken ministry, most likely because the lips, the mouth reveals what's in the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, perhaps he knows the hypocrisy of his own people and his own heart, later he'll, uh, he'll say in Isaiah 29, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The angels touched his lips and seared his lips as his prophet. I was telling, um, telling Bill that the Lord saved me when I was 22 years old. I heard the gospel and he radically changed my life. And I don't know exactly when the Lord saved me, if it was the first time I heard the gospel or the, a week after. But I know when I heard the gospel and I left a country Baptist church that day, 
hearing a pastor with theology that I probably don't agree with as much now as I did then, I know that I left different and the Lord seared my lips. If I could borrow that term, I had a, I had a filthy mouth. I had coarse language and that's being very mild. And the Lord healed me of that immediately. Never again to speak that way. I don't understand that. I'm not trying to give you a reason for it. I'm just telling you what happened. Maybe he knew I would be in ministry. Maybe I would be speaking for him one day. I wish he had seared every sin in my life. I wish he had eliminated all of it that quickly. But he seared my lips when he saved me. He seared Isaiah's lips as his prophet. And he said, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Praise be to God that even in His high and holy, exalted position as sovereign rule and supreme Lord, He is still a merciful God who forgives. Amen? This should be the worst part of the vision. This should be when Isaiah is standing naked and ashamed before the thrice holy God before whom his sin has been revealed. His soul is uneasy. His integrity is unraveled. This is where the white hot, pure, holy, undefiled uh, character of God should destroy this mere mortal. A God who is a consuming fire. Do you not think Isaiah was seeing the angels coming from the altar and he thinks of Uzziah and he remembers what happened to Uzziah when he was in the temple and things didn't go well? But no, these angels came to him and seared his lips. He should have been destroyed, but he was delivered. He should have been annihilated, but he was anointed. This is what God does. God should have wiped out Adam and Eve in the beginning. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And sure, they began dying, but he spared them. He covered them. He cast them out, but they survived. He should have wiped out everybody in Noah's day, but he spared eight. We're used to God's quick thorough wrath. You think of Uzzah, who thought he was innocently touching the ark and he was struck dead. You think of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied in church and were both struck dead. The fact that Isaiah isn't killed here is a display of God's mercy and grace. His guilt was removed. His sin was forgiven and atoned for. What did he do to deserve this? Nothing. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. What I deserve, I don't get. What I deserve, Christ got. We'll talk about that in a moment. God is revealed. Guilt is realized. Grace is received. He receives grace. He receives forgiveness. He receives mercy. And then what's our response? Let's end with this. What's our response? How do you respond to a holy God? In a word, gratitude. Gratitude. What did Isaiah say? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Verse 8. Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. Isaiah volunteered. This is unusual. This is unique. Because prophets don't volunteer. Prophets are chosen by God and called by God. We don't know why Isaiah volunteered. We're not sure why that went down the way it did. But would we respect? Would we expect... Any other response from Isaiah at this point? Would you give 
Any other response to having the holiness of God revealed to you, your guilt realized in you, and grace given to you, would you respond in any other way but gratitude? Here am I. Send me. Let me just end with a quote again from John Oswalt. To reflect this attitude of gratitude that Isaiah demonstrates in his committing himself to service. Oswald says, Having believed with certainty that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by the very holiness of God, and having received an unsought-for and unmerited complete cleansing in the pursing of his lips, what else would Isaiah rather do than hurl himself into God's service? Now listen to this. Those who need to be coerced into service are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. Let me read that again. Those who need to be coerced... He's talking to us believers now. Those who need to be coerced into serving the Lord are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. Have you received this amazing grace from a holy God, are you recipients of His grace as He revealed His guilt to you and covered you with His grace? And have you responded with gratitude and service and love? Or maybe you're here and you say, how do, how do I know that this holy God won't crush me if I come into His presence? Well, again, this is the good news of the Gospel that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and He lived a holy, that is, set-apart perfect life that you and I are unable to live. And then He died a sacrificial death on a cross that you and I deserve because we weren't able to live up to His holy standards. And then He rose from the grave three days later proving that He has the power over sin and death and hell and the grave. And all who come to Him in faith and repentance will be saved. He will make the unrighteous declaring them righteous. That's justification. And then for the rest of your life as a believer, He sanctifies you as was prayed earlier and begins making you more and more like His Son. Do you know the holy God who created you? You can. You can, but only through His holy Son. Let's pray.